1 Samuel chapter 23. And we're thinking this morning about living faithfully under pressure. I saw a, a meme on Facebook this week. A picture of somebody supposed to be Jesus standing outside somebody's house. And it said, No death, no sickness, no evil shall come to your house. Type Amen. What superstitious, pagan nonsense. I can't stand it. And the Bible knows nothing of it. It knows nothing either of what is termed the prosperity gospel, a teaching that says that if you trust Jesus, everything will go well with you. It is superstitious and pagan. Nor the preacher who says, come to Jesus and all your problems will disappear. Sometimes when you come to Jesus, your problems really only start. Jesus is not a maid who is there to run around and tidy up after us. He has a much greater task. And we see the danger in these scenarios is that people come to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They look to Jesus as some sort of magic genie who will make life easy. And then they walk away from Jesus because they think Jesus has failed, but they as it were, were sold the wrong product. We see in the Bible God's people following God and trial and pressure coming. We see that for David here. He has been the recipient of some marvelous promises. God is using him to paint a marvelous portrait of Jesus. But does that mean everything is going smoothly for him? Certainly not. We have seen David under pressure before. When he fell into sinful behavior, when he brought about the destruction of others, where he dishonored God. And now he's back on track spiritually and trouble comes. So what's going to happen? What's he going to do? Because that is what God is doing in our trials and our pressures. He is shaping us and honing us to make us more and more Christ-like. He's using, and if you're not a Christian, he's often using your trials and your troubles to draw you to him. It's not to toughen you up, to cause you to, to be resilient and to be determined and to plow on through. Our trials are to bring us to God and to make us like Christ. So what do we see happening uh, to David here? Well, as we look at David now, we're going to learn two things. But before we get to them, well, we're going to see three things actually. Before we get to them, we learn that the circumstances of our lives are no sure indicator to our relationship with God. The circumstances of our lives are not a sure indicator of our relationship with God. And sometimes, if you're a Christian, you can fall into that trap of thinking, well, here I am obeying God, and it's one thing after another. Well, maybe God doesn't care. And we could base our view of God on our circumstances. And over and over again, we see in the Bible that we're not to do that. And we see David not doing that here. We see David 
looking to God in a way that he didn't do in chapter 21. And so the first of the three things I want us to see this morning are, is the believer's response in trials. The believer's response in trials. Having seen David fail miserably in chapter 21, ignoring God's voice, relying on his own wit, his own resources, doing wrong that, that right might come out of it. What do we see now? When David comes under immense pressure against Saul, is now actively hunting him. It's summertime. The harvest is being gathered into the threshing floors in the western town of Keilah, or Keilah, in the western side of Judea. And the Philistine raiders, whose cities are along the coast, are ravaging the villages on that side of the country. And Keilah is particularly under threat, and they're going to be left with no food for the winter. What will happen? Well, Saul is king. It's his job to protect his people. David is on the run. He's an outlaw. But he's God's appointed king. And we see David respond under pressure with three things. First of all, he seeks God's guidance. And these three things are really very simple. They're not rocket science. But when we compare David's response here to chapter 21 when he was under pressure, we find it very different. In chapter 21, he didn't seek God's guidance. He plowed on and he relied on his own wit and wisdom. Look at these verses here in the opening section of the chapter. Verse 1, when David was told. Then we read in verse 2, he inquired of the Lord. And then, just in case we didn't get the message, the writer underlines it for us. Verse 4, once again, David inquired of the Lord. And just in case we haven't twigged that there's something different going on, verse 10, David said, Lord God of Israel. And then verse 12, again, David asks. Do you see what the writer wants us to see? The lesson we're to learn here, under pressure. David is different this time. He's doing it right. He's seeking God. The contrast couldn't be greater. And he's not just doing what we all do under pressure. Oh, God, help me. He's seeking guidance. He asks, what am I to do? He's got a specific question that he wants specific guidance for. And this is what we're to do when we're in trials and we're under pressure. We're tempted to rely on our own wisdom. Or we're even tempted to turn to the wisdom of others as we see others speaking to David here, we are to seek God's guidance. We're to inquire of the Lord. And when the, his men question uh, the decision, uh, we see that in uh, verse 3, but David's men said to him, even in Judah we're afraid. What does David do? He doesn't say, well, okay, you've got a fair point and the, the wisdom of the crowd is better than the wisdom of one. He says, no, 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 there is one whose wisdom is better than all of the wisdom of all of the crowds. And he goes back to God. There's a moment of whose voice will he listen to? The men with him, with their experience, or the God who's over him? And sometimes there's that moment for us. We're trying to know the right way forward, the way ahead. And other voices speak and they set out their arguments. But their arguments that may sound wise, 
but they are not based on what God has said. Which voice do we listen to? We're to seek God's guidance. And David, it wasn't just that he didn't listen to these other voices. He didn't look at his circumstances and make a stab at what he thought was the right thing. He didn't try to read his circumstances and go, well, you know, I think God is saying this to me. He went to get his principles from God first. And there's an interesting contrast with Saul. You look at verse 7. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. And he said, God has delivered him into my hands. For David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. Saul is so determined to get David that he, he reads into his circumstances whatever he wants himself. And then he pins it on God. Ha, God has done it. So it's okay for me to do this. And sometimes we can do that, can't we? We allow our preference to sit alongside our circumstances and we go, ah, God led me. One writer says this. Uh, he says, what we're saying is, I have glanced at providence. I have read my circumstances through the lens of my own personal optimism or pessimism. And with my own personal wishes near at hand, I have made my decision. That's not how we're to seek God's guidance. God's Word is to inform our ways. God's Word is to guide us. Now, God speaks directly to David here. Are we to expect that today? Well, no, not in the same audible way. Because God's Word is now complete and final, and we have it here in Scripture for us. We're told by Paul that God has given us this Word so that the believer, the man or the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's all we need. In First uh, or Second Peter 1, Peter says that God has given us all we need for life and godliness. So we're to seek God's guidance. It means turning to God in prayer, crying out, turning to God's Word and saying, show me what to do. The second thing, as we're thinking of the believer's response, is do what God calls you to do. Do what God calls you to do. Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Go and attack the Philistines. So David and his men went and attacked the Philistines and inflicted heavy losses. Here's David. And he's behaving like the king that God called him to be. Saul is far from it. He's obsessed with hunting down David. He's even prepared to destroy his own people that he's meant to protect so that he can get David. What sort of a king is that? And David, David gets on with doing what God gave him to do. Even when his men had raised a question, even when the circumstances were hard, he doesn't let his own trials, he doesn't let his own problems blind him to the needs of others. He does what God gave him to do. He could have withdrawn into a pity party and left it for others. He could have even come up with excuses for leaving the job to someone else. But he doesn't. And sometimes we can be like that too, can't we? Where under pressure and facing difficulty, 
There are responsibilities that God has given to us to do. There is obedience he calls us to walk in. And we back away from it. And we lose sight of others around us. And we say, well, I'm just going to to focus on me. And there are times when for our own welfare we do have to focus on us. But that does not mean that we are exempt from the responsibilities that God has given to us of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And as we look at David here, we find that David gets on with doing what God has called him to do. And that's, that's him putting God first. Trials don't exempt us from putting God first. And he finds that as God, or as he obeys God, that God gives him the strength, the success, and the enabling that he needs. You see, pressure doesn't excuse us from obedience. Trials don't excuse us from doing what God gives us to do. Uncertainty about the outcome doesn't excuse us from doing what God calls us to do. We could put it this way, do what God gives you to do, whether you feel like it or not, and leave the consequences with God. David asked for guidance. God told him what to do. David did it. It seemed counterintuitive, but it was the right thing. So that's what to do. Do what God gives us to do. Ask for guidance. Do what God says. Thirdly, trust God's word. Trust God's word. David trusts God's instructions when he defends Keilah. It was leaving David vulnerable. Saul would hear of it. It pinned David down into a particular location. And they're only a day away, a day's march away from Saul's capital city, Gibeah. But David trusts the voice of the one who can see the end of everything from the be- before it even starts. So he goes ahead and he acts on the basis of God's word. And there are times when God's instructions might seem wrong-headed to us, when doing the right thing might seem counterproductive. But we are to trust the commands and the word of him who knows the end of a matter from before it even starts. Sometimes when we're under pressure, we're tempted to say, God's word or God's commands, that well, they're fine for other circumstances, but I'm going to have to go against them here. No, we're called to trust God's word. The wisdom of David's fighting men said, don't defend Keilah. God's word said, do defend it. David defends it and leaves the outcome in God's hands. And you know, I think that is why we don't see a particular reaction from David. The men of Keilah respond by betraying David. We don't see bitterness and we don't see resentment from David. We don't see anger at their ingratitude. Now, hold that thought in mind for several weeks' time when we come to another ungrateful person who responds to David with ingratitude and David's response to him. What's different? He's going to slaughter him. 
But David doesn't respond that way here. And I think it's because he hasn't protected Keilah for the kudos of the people of Keilah. He hasn't done it primarily, in a sense, for their thanks. He's done it because God said so. He's obeying because God said so. And he's trusting God. God, you asked me to do it. I'm doing it. They're going to betray me. But I, I just did what you asked me to do. I'm out of here. But he trusted God. And that trusting God guards his heart and soul so that he doesn't become bitter at their ingratitude. And maybe you've experienced that. You've helped somebody. You've sought to, to do what a Christian should do. And it's rebounded on you. And they've shown no appreciation or worse than that. Uh, they've turned against you after all you've done for them. And, and it can eat at us and gnaw at us. But no, we weren't doing it in a sense for them. We were doing it because God called us to do it. And the outcome's in God's hands. And we'll keep doing what God calls us to do because we trust that His instructions for us are right. Walking in God's ways, because they are God's ways, safeguards us from our own wrong reactions. God's ways are sure, even when our circumstances are not. So how do we live under pressure? Ask for guidance. Act on the guidance. And trust the guidance. Ask for God's word, obey God's word, trust God's word, and keep doing it. I have a t-shirt that says, eat, sleep, swim, repeat. Um, ask, obey, trust, repeat. That's what we do under pressure. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. And actually, David will stumble at other times because that's what he forgot to do. To keep doing it. That brings us to our second point. Now, if that was all there was in trials and under pressure, it'd be tough going. But we see something else in this chapter. We see God's help in trials. God's help in trials. And again, there's three things for us to note that should encourage us greatly. First of all, God gives guidance. God gives guidance. Now, as you read through those opening verses, first 12, 13 verses, what's the oddest verse in there? What's the verse? What's that doing there? What does that even mean? I'm going to suggest that it's verse 6. We're in the midst of a whole battle scenario, rescuing people, and then we've got this. Uh, uh, now, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. What an odd thing. It's even in brackets in our English translation. But it's probably the most significant verse in the section. Why is that? Because it's one of the ways that God is going to communicate with David. You see, before God gave us his, his word in all its fullness... He had provided ways in which guidance came to his people. The priest's job was to bring guidance from God to the people and to the king. And this ephod was a garment that he wore and it contained, uh, according to the Old Testament, a, a couple of things called the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know exactly what they were, but 
Some writers think that it may have been four stones, two black, two white. And you would ask God for a, a, a question that required a yes, no answer. And the priest would ask, present the question to God. He would reach into to this pouch and he would pull out two stones. Two black would mean no. Two white would mean yes. A black and a white would mean no answer. And that may be how it worked. And I think that's what we're seeing in verse 11 and 12. This, uh, these, the, the questions that David asks earlier, God gives full answers to. In verse 11 and 12, he asks, Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? The Lord said, They will. You look at the previous question, the answer is, He will. It's a, more or less a straight yes to both. And I think that's what we're seeing. But it's bigger than just an answer mechanism or a way of God giving guidance. It's God bringing his full communications team to David. Earlier in chapter 21, we find the prophet Gad is with David. Now we find that the priest Abiathar is with David. That's the full communications team that are there with him now. They've been taken away from Saul. He doesn't have the priest with the ephod for guidance. And we see Saul faffing about misreading God's providence, not knowing where David is, trying to get info out of the villagers of Ziph. And here's God's help to David. He gives guidance. Note the order. David went seeking guidance. God gave guidance. And he does that. For us today. Now he did not do it by providing a high priest or the Urim and Thummim because he's given us his word. And more than that his promises in James 1 that if we lack wisdom we are to ask God who gives generously. And he has given us a high priest on the throne of grace who promises to give us all that we need. We will get guidance and wisdom from God. Sometimes the decisions we face are what we might call right-wrong decisions. And as we read God's Word, we see clear instruction. This is right, this is wrong. And so we know what to do. Other decisions that we are faced with are what we might call wise or foolish decisions. They're not clearly right or wrong. But there are wiser ones, and there are less wise ones, and there are foolish ones. And there are all sorts of different components to making the decision. And as we look through God's Word, we find different principles that help us to make wiser decisions. And we seek to bring those principles into play. And we ask God, show me the right decision to make as I'm trying to use your Word to give me wisdom. And God does that for us. And then there's a third category of decisions that we have to make in life that we might call who cares decisions. There's right, wrong. There's wise, foolish. And there's what we might call who cares. Which pair of socks will I put on this morning? Some Christians have advocated that we should pray about everything. I don't think God treats us like we need to pray about which pair of socks to put on, what colour of car to buy, what make of car to buy. Now we are to be wise stewards, 
So there may be an aspect of buying a car that fits into the wise foolish. But the model, the mailer, these things, these, God is a generous God who says there are many things within the parameters of right and wrong. There are many things within the parameters of wise and foolish or wise decisions. We're not to get tied up in knots, but where decisions are going to impact our spiritual welfare and growth and impact others, we must be particularly careful when it comes to God's Word. Yes, there, there are decisions that are of less consequence than others. But even decisions like what job we get is not a who cares decision. It may have ramifications for our spiritual welfare. And so we're to seek God's wisdom and God's guidance. The point here, though, is that God guides His people. And especially when they're in tough and difficult circumstances, uh, difficult circumstances, and we're not sure what way to act, guidance is there. God gives guidance. Secondly, God sends encouragement. God sends encouragement. Day after day, we read, Saul is searching. He's hunting. He's got his spies out. His men are combing the crevasses and caves of the region. And David hears of it. How discouraging. He's being hunted down by an army. He says in Psalm 54, Ruthless men are trying to kill me. Strangers seek for my life. Psalm 57, we sang from it. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows. They dig a pit in my path. Imagine what it's like. He keeps saying in the Psalms, I won't be afraid, I will trust in God. It means he must have been afraid. And he's, he's saying, I won't let it dominate me. And into the midst of this camp of a man hunted and harried, into this secret camp strides an individual. Jonathan. Saul can't find David for love nor money. And Jonathan saunters into camp. You imagine David's reaction when he sees him. Oh, Jonathan. Jonathan, magnificent. And we read that Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Jonathan just doesn't come to be another person to, to be alongside him like the 600 men. David, or Jonathan comes specifically to encourage and to strengthen David in God. It's great to have a friend come alongside us when we're struggling. It's great to have a friend come and to just be there when we're facing trials. But more when we've got a friend who comes and who says to us what Jonathan says to David, don't be afraid. And he does what Jonathan does for David. He reminds David of God's promises. He reminds David of what God has said in his word, that David had been anointed by Samuel to be king. And Jonathan says, My father will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel. I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. There's lessons that we can learn about 
being the person that God uses to encourage other Christians. Dale Ralph Davis says that we best encourage people not by being cuddly with them, but by reminding them of God's promises. Are we the sort of friend that God uses to encourage people because we strengthen them in God? That's what we're to do, to take them to God's Word, not glibly or lightly the way sometimes a Christian can traipsy in and say, oh, well, all things work together for good. But somebody who sits down and puts their arm around and speaks of a God who cares and a God who has promised His protection to be a light in the darkness that He will never leave or forsake, that He has loved you with an everlasting love. Will we do that? But note, God is the one who is encouraging here. He has sent Jonathan on this journey. He brings Jonathan into David's camp. And he brings encouragement. And again, note the order. David obeys. David obeys. And encouragement comes. David obeys. And then encouragement comes. Often we wait for encouragement before we obey. We're sitting there waiting for God to encourage us, to give us a, a, a lift to get up and do what we're to do. No, get on and do it. And look what God does. He encourages, but look, look at the timing of it, because look at what comes next. Verse 19, whatever about the men of Keilah. Maybe they thought that David was here and Saul would slaughter us like he did the people at Nob. But David wasn't even in Ziph. He was around the area, and these guys go running to squeal on him. But just before that big discouragement comes, what has happened? David has been encouraged by God through Jonathan. And maybe if that hadn't have happened, the next chapter would be a very different chapter. You see, there's a timing to God's encouragement that is perfect. There's a timing to God's Word that is precise. I remember uh, some friends, Ken and Pauline Nelson being here for an evening service one Sabbath evening, and I've been preaching, re-preaching a series on the attributes of God, and I changed that afternoon which one I was doing next. I didn't know why I changed it. It just seemed that the other one fitted better. And Ken and Pauline had thanked me for the sermon. They'd appreciated it. And a few days later, Ken had a massive brain hemorrhage. And they sent me a message, or Pauline sent me a message a few days after that and said, now I know why we needed that sermon on the wisdom of God and how no matter what happens, he always does, that it gets the best results the best way. We needed it because of what was coming. God's timing was perfect. God's timing was perfect. He had encouragement in place for them in the midst of a trial that was going to come upon them. God's timing is perfect. And that leads us to our third point. God controls everything. God controls everything. Here's one last element of God's help. His overruling providence. God's providence is simply just the way that He governs everything. 
perfectly for the best outcome. And that's what we see right here. God overruling everything. You know, there's a a comedy moment in verse 7 and verse 14. In verse 7, Saul says, God has delivered him or handed him over to me. Oh, really, Saul? Look at verse 14, how it finishes. But God did not give or hand over, it's the same word, uh, David to Saul. Or God did not give, uh, yes, there it is. It's, it's God did not give, uh, God did not give David into his hands. That's it. There's an awful lot of talk of hands here. We see it again in verse 20 from the people of Ziph. Now your majesty come down uh, whenever it pleases you and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. David is in somebody's hand. Not in Saul's hand. Not in the, the people of Ziph for them to hand him over to Saul. He is in God's hand. And God is the one who is orchestrating all of the details here. And as we look down on the scene, we see David's army, his men rather, and they're, they're going down one side of a hill. Uh, and, and we see Saul's army, and they're coming down the other side of the hill. And the two are about to meet. They're about to be caught. David is about to be captured. And we see a lone figure and a horse coming riding up. And he, he speaks to somebody at the head of Saul's army. And there's a conversation that happens. And then we see the entire army wheeling away. And David's men and David left on the other side of the mountain, hearing the sound of retreating hoofbeats as an entire army rides away from them. What happened? They're thinking. God's overruling care is what is happening. Imagine David, he probably couldn't believe it. You get the sense of it at the end of Psalm 54. He's amazed that God has done this. Think of the timing of it. Think of the irony of it. The very enemy that David had defeated in verses 1 to 5 is now the enemy that comes to his rescue at the end of the chapter. What a God! Uses even our enemies to help us, to protect us. And then, as we read on, we see, think about what had to happen for this safety to be, to be brought about. The Philistines had to attack at just the right moment. If they were late in attacking, then the messenger would be late in arriving and David would be caught. The messenger had to ride at the right speed to go to Gibeah, the capital where Saul was meant to have been, find he wasn't there, and then get redirected to the right place to find Saul. And then he had to find Saul in a wilderness which is full of caves, cliffs, mountains, ravines. And he finds Saul. Lucky, wasn't it? Or maybe, just maybe, there was a God in control of every single detail. And that's what we find. That's what we find. We see God's providence at work. And again, note the order. David trusted. And was his trust wasted? No. He found that having trusted, he didn't know the way it would work out, but God provided. God overruled. Trusting people see God at work. God loves 
when we trust him with our circumstances. It reveals that we are grasping more and more of who he is. And I know, and I'm so thankful this passage is about serious life and death matters because there are times when the circumstances we are having to trust God with are life and death issues. They are not small. They are colossal. And David shows us here that God's hands are safe hands. We've heard that phrase before. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Wasn't it the Lord Jesus Christ who shows us completely and ultimately that our Father has safe hands and we are not wasting our time entrusting ourselves to Him? Oh, what confidence! we should have as we, as we face trials. Yes, we're to ask, we're to obey, we're to trust. Oh, but we've got a God who guides. We've got a God who encourages. We've got a God who overrules everything for the good of His people. We have, here's how the believer is to live under trial. Here's what God provides for us when we're under trial. So let's live a life of faith and trust. I have a third point here, but I'm going to leave it um, there this morning. But suffice to say, the third point was to take us further to Jesus. But I think we've, we just finish with Jesus' words on the cross where he says, into your hand I commit my spirit. Why did he say it out loud? He, as David's greater son, was saying to us what his great ancestor had discovered, that our Father in heaven has safe hands. And God the Son, in the most catastrophic of moments, as it were, on the cross, says, you can trust my Father's hands. And so, under pressure and in trial, keep on trusting because the Lord Jesus Christ shows that his Father can be trusted no matter what is going on. Amen. If we're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we, we panic. We lose sight of you. Our circumstances loom large in front of us. But help us to hear you and to see you, to obey you and to trust you. Thank you that this is not a one-way street, but that what you call us to do is like a, a road that has got a lane going one way and ten lanes coming the other way because your provision for us is always greater than what you ask of us. And we thank you that you provide guidance, that you provide encouragement, that your timing for encouragement is perfect and your overruling is monumental in its scale and scope. And we thank you for your providence. So help us to know in the midst of difficulties that we can live well under trial because our God has safe hands and we are in your hands. 
Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.